Good morning, guys. Good to see you again. <laughs> How about we open our Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. It's the first spot. We're going to have two spots that you're going to be opening up to. Gospel of John, chapter 3. And then uh, secondly, I want you guys to open up to the book of 1 John, chapter 4. 1 John, chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. We'll look at that in just a moment here. Before, you, uh, before we jump into that and read it, I want to reiterate, if we can throw that crockpot luck thing back up there again, I just want to make a quick little statement. If, if it's too much, sorry about that. Um, I, I like to like make people's jobs really, really hard for them. Um, difficult. That's that's my middle name. But um, uh, I want to talk about this real briefly because this is this is awesome. If you've never been to one of our crock pot locks, if you don't even know what that is, so just think of it this way: crock or think uh, potluck, right? If you've been to potluck, you know, friendsgiving something like that, where everybody brings something. This is a crock pot lock. So everybody brings a crock pot or brings their food in a crock pot. What's Fantastic. I mean, it could also be an Instant Pot, too. If you're kind of like, I don't, I don't even know what a crock pot is. I use Instant Pot. That's fine, too. Rice cookers, totally cool, too, as well. Anything within a pot. I mean, if you don't have that, that's fine, as well. You can go to the thrift store and get them for, like, eight bucks. But the point that I would make is this. It's phenomenal, the type of creative stuff that people bring in these things. Anything from as, like, minimal, bare minimal as, like, white rice, which is that's cool, I guess. But all we've had people, like, make the most insane curry dishes, like... I don't I, like. I don't know. Michelin star might be pushing it too too far. But like high level, high level food that we're sitting there eating all this food. Like this food is absolutely phenomenal. There are people making bread in their crock pots. Like things that you could never even imagine. And it's kind of fun to just think of it as a narrow way of saying how can I make something phenomenal in this you know, specified format of a crock pot or an instant pot or whatever. So uh, again, if you've not ever been to something like that. Don't don't miss it. It's going to be a lot of fun. And, and, and uh, to throw the icing on top, you get the rest of everything else, the little kid performance, the singing of songs and all that type of stuff. It's going to be really kind of a lot of fun evening uh, next week. So with that being said, let's go ahead and jump in. This is, as I mentioned earlier, the second week of Advent. We've been in a little bit of an Advent series. If you guys don't have a Bible, we have some ushers that would love to get you a Bible. So go ahead and raise your hands and uh, they'll get you one. But in this series, each week, we've been pausing to really reflect upon four major themes that oftentimes this season of Advent are framed around. Again, the word Advent just simply means arrival or coming or the appearing of Jesus. It's a time where Christians have historically, really from the very beginning, focused upon the coming of Jesus, not just simply in terms of reflecting upon the past, but really also anticipating the future, that Jesus one day will come again. He tells us that. He promised that to his disciples. We're living in crazy, precarious times, but we also have this deep hope that one day, in spite of how broken and messed up and ruined our world is, that Jesus will one day come back, restore, renew, and make all things new again. And that's our hope. And this is a time to really kind of uh, position our hearts around the work that Jesus is doing. Uh, We've been doing this in a format of looking at a variety of major themes that appear in the Bible. Last week, for example, we looked at the theme of hope. Today, we'll look at the theme of love, and then peace, and then joy. Um, Everything has kind of been framed around this main central theme verse, which is John 3.16. I'll read that, and uh, we'll then move on to 1 John. So he says this. Again, most of you are familiar with this. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life or eternal life, some of your translations might know. 
Each one of these kind of carries some indication or depiction of this idea of hope, love, peace, and joy. Now, I want to jump forward to that passage that we looked at in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Before we jump into that, we're going to be, as I mentioned, talking about the subject of love. And so the question that we will be pondering and thinking about here this morning is, what really is the idea of love? I would think that the average Westerner, the average person that lives in America, average person that lives here in California, if you were to ask them, what do you think about when you think about the concept of love? I think it boils down in one or two categories. Number one, love is either primarily a sexual or a form of bodily love. That's the highest form of love or the archetype of love. Eros, what you can describe it as, sexual love. Um, or it's other oftentimes viewed as like an involuntary type of emotion that just simply, quote-unquote, happens to you. It's kind of like falling into a pit. It just happened to you. You just happened upon this thing called love, or it just happened to somehow grab you by the throat or grab you by the heart, and it's not letting you go, and you're kind of in its grip. You are basically a victim of love. It just happens to you. But I would suggest to you that this is a problem if you look at the Bible and frame your concept of love around this lens in the Bible because what will end up happening, we will, I think, unfortunately miss what the Bible has to teach us about this concept of love. John, which we just read, John 3.16, describes to us this picture of God's love. Uh, Further, John is going to unpack for us a bigger, broader, I think more robust picture of what love is in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. I'm going to read it, and then we will, I'll pray again, just ask God to open our hearts to what he wants to speak to us, and then we'll begin to take a look at this larger, broader passage, but more specifically, the theme of love that gets unpacked in this passage. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12 says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God is made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. And this is the word of the Lord. Jesus, we ask you right now that you would open our hearts, our minds, our imaginations to this picture of what love is and how you've embodied this ideal, this perception, this picture of something that's beautiful and that's good and life transformative. God, I pray that you would not only have it encounter us and transform and change us, but God, use it as a schematic to help us to live into this so that we become embodiments of love around us. God, we know our world is is desperate for love. We live in such a broken place right now. And so, God, I pray that you would help us to be the embodiment of this in our context right now in which we live. And we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to break it down this passage in a couple different ways. I want to just start basically with John's, I think, thesis statement. I think this is John's kind of way of just sort of summarizing. In other words, if this, therefore that. And I'll just kind of break it down to this. 
John's thesis statement goes something like this, that, again, let us love one another. Just listen to it again carefully. Let us love one another. Uh, For love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God. Everyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And there's a lot to unpack here. I'm not going to digest or unpack the majority of it, but I just want for us to think about, this is a thesis statement. This is John's way of basically saying, because God is this, therefore we are to mirror or live out this particular way. And if we don't, here's here's the mismatch or here's the, the problem. Here's the irony that oftentimes that gets created or the challenge or the confusion oftentimes happen. And again, I don't need to spend a whole lot of time to uh, unpack with you guys and ask the question, how many times have Christians failed to properly represent God's love in our world today, right? Yes, a lot of people. That's, we've all been partakers and participants in this uh, broken depiction of God's love. All of us play into that. So this is John's basic way of just saying, because God is love, therefore love is to be part of who we are and how we act and how we operate and how we treat other people. But the big question then kind of comes back to really this question of like, what is love? Like, how does it break down? Even more importantly, like, how does John break down love? Again, as I already alluded to, that as a culture, I think we have some sort of idea in which we would think about what love is. But as I mentioned, that if we use that as a framework or a frame of reference to define what love is, then I think what we're going to find is is a problem when we're reading through passages like this, because it's not going to make sense, because we're looking for something other than what's being depicted here. So in other words, we might read the Bible over and over and over again and miss the very thing that we are hoping that we're going to somehow stumble upon. But we're not going to stumble upon it because we're, we're basically looking for the wrong thing. Uh, let me give you another example. It's kind of like when the disciples, they're thinking about Jesus as a Messiah, or in messianic terms, they're thinking of Jesus as a Messiah being like Jesus as a warrior. But Jesus didn't come to be a warrior. He didn't come to shed blood. He came to have his blood shed. And so there was oftentimes a, a mismatch of their expectations with what Jesus truly was. And this is a problem. Um, and it kind of, it's an invitation, I think, at the same time for you and I to read the Bible, to receive the Bible and what Jesus says about himself on his terms, as opposed to us trying to read our understanding or our expectations of what we think Jesus should be or what we think love should look like into what scripture reveals to us about who Jesus is. So, like I said, I think it's important for us to kind of pause, to reflect, to think about what does John introduce to us about the type of love that God is? Or if you want to think of it another way, what is the anatomy of love that God or that John gives to us about God's love? I think there's at least three different things that we're going to look at here that kind of get unpacked in this passage. Number one, I think we're going to see that it's actually sourced in God. We'll go through each one of these as we uh, make our way through this. It's, secondly, it's manifested. It's made real. It's tangible. And then lastly, we see that it's ultimately transformative. It brings about Real transformation, true, thorough transformation, which you're, you're not the same person. When you've encountered this love, you are a radically different person. There's no other way to describe it. You become a different human being or a different sort of human being than what you once previously were. So with that being said, let's jump in and take a look at the anatomy of love. Number one, we see that it's actually sourced in God. Again, John just drops this little phrase to us and upon us. He says, for God is love. There's a lot of things that the Bible just describes that God does, but this is one of those moments where it actually tells us God is something. God is something. Um, God is, by definition, love. In other words, it's sourced in God. 
if you want to think of it another way, we know what love is, or we have a perception or an ability to know what love is because dot, 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 God. There's no other need for any other explanation after that, that God exists. And because God exists, or how John and New Testament and Old Testament writers alike, they want us to realize that there is a God that rules all things, that has created all things, that spoke all things into being, your life into being, your life has meaning, value, purpose, dignity, worth, because there is a God that actually exists. Now, as I was thinking through this, that the idea or the way in which we frame our understanding of love is not just simply solely approached through a biblical lens. In other words, the origin of love is ultimately interpreted differently across evolutionary, religious, you can describe this as pagan and secular, and or or linguistic framework. In other words, there's different ways in which people talk about God's love or talk about love in general. With that being said, I think it's important to just kind of pause and think about some of the prevailing myths or ideas that are out there about love and how we come to our understanding of love. So one of them, for example, is evolutionary biology has a theory of love, as you think about this. Like, in other words, in a framework of our world, not everybody believes in Jesus, not everybody follows the narrative or the story of a God that's out there somewhere here that lived 2,000 years ago. Not everybody believes that. I'm not sure if you knew that or not, right? We all know that, of course. We live in a secular culture and society. But there are prevailing myths that people still have to account for certain emotional and responsive actions, and one of those is love. So if you were to talk to an evolutionary biologist, someone that does not believe in God as being a part of this origin story, you still have to account for the fact that there is this bond, you can describe it as that way, between one human and another human being. But how do you define that love? And where does that idea of love come from? How do you trace it upstream? And how do you account for that particular emotion? And so according to typical evolutionary biology theory, for the most part, you'll have various perspectives, but at least three things will oftentimes come into play. Number one, love is formed or framed because of altruism. It's a way of just simply selfless, concerning one's well self with the other people's well-being. In other words, it, it works better for the pack of human beings to survive to be a loving type of a person than to be a selfish type of a person. In other words, think about it this way. If you were to live, you know, 3,000 years ago and you're your tribe of, say, 300 people, this is your family, these are your people, this is your group, your community, it's better for you to treat your fellow human being with some form of altruism than by raping and pillaging and stealing from them, that your society will not last very long. So it's a form of survival technique. So in other words, altruism is formed or framed as a means of survival. So Another one is kin selection. This is a typical idea of natural selection that favors certain traits that, are, that benefit the reproductive, reading some of the stuff that I've written down here, that benefit the reproductive success of an organism's relatives. In other words, the big idea here is that you want to live in such a way that shows commitment or devotion or quote-unquote love to other people because it's a, it's a more preferable trait. Again, then to lying and stealing and raping and pillaging and being just kind of a violent human being. Your tribe isn't going to last very long if everybody is selfishly taking from each other and then they turn on each other, right? That, so, so again, survival of the fittest would basically dictate or describe the way that you are going to live long and lengthy, successful lives over your enemies is by this framing of this concept of love. 
Another way is what's described as inclusive fitness theory. So uh, the point of the matter is that love really kind of in this context is a complex social biological phenomenon that's influenced by genetics, psychological, and anthropological sources. That's how you would come to think about this concept or this bond between human and human in the context of love from an evolutionary biological perspective. But that's not the only one that's basically, for the most part, in the open, free market of ideas. Uh, there's another one I think is far more prevalent in our world today. And I would describe this as the pagan theory of love. Pagan theory of love. So often as people have this misnomer that if you were going to reject the Christian or Judeo-Christian view of God in a culture and a society, then you have to. The, the, the response of that or the opposite of uh, the Judeo-Christian view is um, atheism. And in some cases, that, that may fit, but I don't think personally in America that is what's replacing the idea of God. Uh, yes, there are atheistic circles that are loud and vocal and whatnot. They exist. I don't think that's the prevailing myth that has occupied the minds of Americans, specifically Californians. I think it's more so the idea of the pagan theory of love. In other words, you have an ancient uh, historical worldviews, these ideas that you had Aphrodite or Eros or other names for some of these gods and goddesses within, say, Norse uh, legends and whatnot. But the point of the matter is most of them are all kind of very much the same. Most of these are framed primarily around the physical union of other human beings over emotional, devotional, or relational fidelity. In other words, the big idea here is the concept of love within a pagan theory of love. Again, I want to focus really specifically on the idea of theory. What is a theory? A theory is a way of thinking about how do we come across or think about certain ideas. In this context, we're putting the word love under the microscope and asking, where do we get our idea about this? It's important. It really matters. Because if it's just simply uh, from a biological perspective, then we've got some things that we've got to think about. If it's from this concept of this pagan theory of love, this kind of moves into more of this idea where it's framed primarily around a physical union um, rather than emotional, devotional, relational fidelity. In other words, within contemporary pagan ideas, this concept of coming together, one body meeting with another body, having some form of union or communication or coming together, oftentimes through sexualized types of activities. Hold on a second. Let's try again. Series eavesdropping on me. So one of the things that we have to like recognize within this contemporary paganism that we see oftentimes, it's not only ancient, but also modern in our world in which we live in today, and I think is the main prevailing idea. What you will find is regular forms of sexual activity. So for example, within the context of contemporary paganism, it's oftentimes characterized by broad acceptance and diverse expressions of gender, sexuality, relationships, and within these quote-unquote relationships, what I mean by that, relationships that oftentimes include same-sex relationships, BDSM relationships, polyamorous relationships, which is uh, this agreed-upon relationship where I might be married to my wife, but I also might have three girlfriends on the side. Don't judge me, because that's our arrangement. You have no right to judge me because we are living within this. I'm not saying that's not happening, but I'm saying that this is the idea of oftentimes a polyamory where you could have multiple relationships. And again, some uh, humanistic behavioral therapists would look at that and say, this is, this is part of, this is the normal way, normal default of human beings. Men have many wives, men have many sexual partners, and that's just the normal. What I would suggest to you, that is not the normal within the Judeo-Christian worldview. It's very different. 
which means that the concept of love is very different. This totally matters because if you're looking at our world today and you're trying to make sense of like what in the world has happened in our world today within our concept of relationships, sexual relationships, our various identities, transgender concepts, open relationships, recreational sex, of course, consensual. Um, All of this has been standard fare within paganism for thousands of years. It's not new. So I would suggest that the culture we live in today is not Christian. I would even say it's, I don't even think it's atheist. There are pockets of atheism. Yes, there are pockets of Christianity. The main warp and woof of our cultural air in which we breathe I would suggest is paganism, if you like, neo-paganism. It's a way of viewing that we have to thrive, we have to survive, and the way that we do that specifically is oftentimes through physical connections that we will typically call, quote-unquote, love. Consensual relationships, sexual relationships. Now, here's the point that I want to make is this, is that all of these theories ultimately need to be tested and ultimately they will be leaned into. So the point of the matter is every single one of us in this room have some sort of idea in our mind. It's maybe cognizant and maybe not even something that you're aware of, by which when you think about the idea or the concept of love, that's, that's shaping you. It's making you. You're either leaning into that concept or you're avoiding that concept. But the point of the matter is we are each of us, all of us, shaped by some specific idea. Each one of them has consequences. So in other words, if you believe in more of an evolutionary biological theory of love, you might be able to identify or trace upstream certain aspects of altruism and kin selection and inclusive fitness theory. But does that warm the heart? Does that make you feel more part of life and vitality? Does that give you a deep sense of purpose and meaning? No, not really, because it can't. It can't. It can maybe identify certain behaviors that have influenced what you do and why you do it and how you act in certain ways, but it will never give you this deep sense of like, I have meaning and purpose and value, and I am alive because of this relationship that I have. You can't really do that. It can define certain chemistry or chemicals that are happening within your body and biological system and parts where the brain lights up and it can identify all that stuff. It may be helpful for some of that. For some of us that are nerds, we, we, we like that type of stuff, but it cannot make you feel a deep sense of purpose in life. Pagan theory of love, it might give you the feeling of physical, sexual connection with other people that you may be longing for. It may give you this superficial sense of, oh, I'm wanted by someone else that wants me. And it's one of the reasons why I think rampant sexuality is oftentimes just kind of a part of the natural landscape here on the West Coast. It's because it's a way of saying, the way that I know that I'm accepted and loved and received is when someone else will lay their body down next to mine. doesn't matter what gender they are. doesn't matter what sexuality they are. doesn't matter what preferences they have. It doesn't matter how many bodies are actually in that room. At least I know that I know that I know that I'm being accepted because they had a sexual encounter and experience with me. That has flaws. Because what happens when you wake up the next morning and you're alone again? What happens when you wake up and you're pregnant 
and yet you don't even know who impregnated you, and now you're facing this pregnancy that you don't know what to do with. It wasn't something that you expected. There's a deep sense of pain and anguish and loss as to how do I move forward. These are real-life emotional examples that happen in our world, and they are all framed around psychological philosophical concepts and ideas in which how we think about the construction of this concept of love. Biblical idea of love is also a theory that I think has very valid proof and evidence to it. It's a way of thinking about this concept of something that all of us so deeply need and is available to us. So again, all these theories need to be tested and ultimately leaned into But really, at the end of the day, you need to decide for yourself what makes the most sense of this world and how you think about that and what brings the most truest meaning and purpose in your life and that ultimately shows forth the most sustainable pathway to demonstrating goodness to other people around us. And I would suggest to you, the biblical, Judeo-Christian biblical view of love is the most sustainable, most life-giving most life-transformative. And it's the one that will bring you the highest level, deepest level of satisfaction and joy in this world, but also in the next. So with that being said, I want to move on from this number one idea, which, first of all, the anatomy of love, it's deeply sourced in God. So central to this biblical perspective is that there is a God that is there. He's there. You might have a rough relationship with this God. You might have had a relationship with this God where 20 years ago you were deeply connected to this God. But time, life, challenges, hardships, struggles, pain have just hit you hard. You have felt the weight of life. You've felt the drift of your soul from this God. But he's still there. That hasn't changed. And he still loves you. He's still deeply committed to you. That doesn't change the fact that that is the case. And we can thank God for that because no matter how much life pulls us away from this God, this God is always consistently present. And we can always return to him over and over and over again. And he receives us because this God is not a capricious God who's angry or temperamental, who one day is really happy, the next day he's very cranky. This God is a God that you can faithfully trust in because he is there for you and he's glad to receive you back. He's a God that doesn't just simply tolerate you or put up with you or mildly just deal with you and your antics as a human being. He's a God that deeply is committed to you. How much so? Well, this kind of leads us into the very next thing. Part of the anatomy of love is it moves on into this idea that it is ultimately manifested. And this is what John says in John chapter 4, verse 9. He says, the love of God was made manifest among us, and God sent his only son into the world. And that's what we're celebrating, obviously, this time of year, is the fact that Jesus came into this world, that God took upon himself flesh and blood. We use the language, the incarnation. Again, it's just a big theological word that basically means take upon himself flesh and bone. All right, this is a God that's not out there. He's not incorporeal. He doesn't have, uh, he, obviously, this God that we talk about, Yahweh God of the Old Testament, does not have a physical body. But Jesus puts upon himself physical 
attributes and realities in order to step into this world for a specific purpose, which we'll look at in just a moment. So again, take a look at this. The love of God was made manifest again, uh, among us that God sent his only son in the world. The idea of manifest means to become evident or be seen or observed. And this isn't too far of a stretch for us to really understand this, because I mean, really at the end of the day, you can be someone that says, I love you, I love you. You can use words, you can speak them, you can write them in letters, you can post them in notes. But if you never are present, if you never show up when a person's especially at their lowest or going through a tough time or in the midst of suffering, then that becomes an occasion where that love or that affirmation then can become questioned. And some of you know this because you grew up in a family where either mom or dad maybe claimed certain things, but for whatever reason, they were very non-present. They were not there. And today you are going through therapy and working through challenges and hardships and pain and aches because of the fact that you have grown up in a context that was very questionable, very confusing. Because on the one hand, you had a dad that would say, I love you, I love you, I love you, but on a regular, consistent basis, always presented a very confusing message by way of either his absence or when he was there, he was just physically present, but not emotionally present. So therefore that sent you into a state of confusion. That is a very real reality, which by the way, I'll just make a quick little statement on this. If that is the case, this is where we can reshape and have a better understanding as to what love looks like by not by looking past our parents, looking past those formative agents in our lives and looking to the father heart of God and how that God reveals himself ultimately through Jesus, that Jesus comes into this world as the fullest expression of what love ultimately looks like. So in other words, if you're trying to figure out like what does love look like, do a deep dive, take a deep dive into the life of Jesus and what you will find is someone that was radically focused on helping and serving and loving and caring and tending for other people. Radically focused on righteousness and justice. Jesus was always calling spades spades and calling uh, attention to those areas of injustices that are happening. And Jesus was always seeking to help those that were going through deep moments of pain in their lives and were marginalized or forgotten about. Jesus was including and bringing them back in, not to just simply be part of his posse, but ultimately to become part of a discipleship process whereby they would become changed and shaped like fire shapes and changes metal, where it becomes something that is malleable and shapeable in its, uh, in its presence. And this is what Jesus does. So this kind of leads me to the very last thing before I get to that. I want to read what John has to say in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Let me just go ahead and read this. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. John would say this, That which is from the beginning, that which, we, that which we have heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, that which we looked upon and we have touched. And this is John, the apostle, speaking. Now remember, he's writing to a bunch of people that did not necessarily see Jesus, did not touch Jesus, were not with Jesus. He's writing to a bunch of people that had would not been familiar with that Jesus. But John's saying, we did. I hung out with this Jesus. I walked with him around the Sea of Galilee. I saw him perform miracles. I heard his messages. And he's saying, this, we're writing to you guys so that you would know that even though we were with him, we saw him, he goes on to say verse 2, that the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify to it, and we proclaim to you that eternal life, that which was from the Father, it was made manifest to us. We are, goes on to say, we are writing these things to you so that your joy might be complete. John's whole aim is like, look, even though you were not there with Jesus, you didn't touch him, you didn't see him, you didn't have dinner with them, you didn't hear a sermon, I want you to nonetheless have access to the same joy 
that he's given to us. So let me ask you, what is God's highest aim for you? Your misery? Is he really out to just simply destroy your life or to take from you or to crush your dreams? Actually, he's a God that loves to bring deep joy into our lives. But he does this on his terms, not on our terms. Because oftentimes, again, everything about our culture says, live into your own dreams, your own self-awareness, your own self-assessment of who you are, how you're wired, and live into that into all of its fullness. And the problem with that, I I think, look, I I have a lot of years on my life. And one of the things I've noticed throughout the years of my life is I've changed my mind so many times. I mean, I think about people that I I was once super connected with or once super uh, in in relationship with or desires that I once had over the course of my life. And I'm like, I'm so thankful that God did not give me what I so deeply wanted in that particular season of my life. But I couldn't see it then in that moment. I literally, I mean, think about this. How many times if God were to give you every single thing that you've ever longed for and desired in this particular moment of your life, that Five years from now, you would actually be utterly miserable. But this is a God that doesn't give us everything that we just simply beg for him, uh, beg from him. That, this is a God that gives us what ultimately is going to lead to our deepest, greatest joy. And that's what John says. And ultimately, this is found through the person of Jesus. So lastly, this leads me to my final little point, and I'm done is this concept of this anatomy of love being, ultimately, it is transformative. Listen to how he says this in verses 8 through 12. He says, God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us. And they sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. I think there's at least four different things that he's describing here that this type of love transforms. Now, let me pause and just really quickly think about this. Like, when you fall in love with someone and you devote yourself to that particular person, there are things about you that will ultimately change. You will become a different person. If you go into a relationship seeking to definitively hold on to your autonomy and they go into that relationship seeking to definitively hold on to their autonomy, I promise you, you will end in divorce. Promise you. Give it a few years, it will be miserable. And there's a reason for that because you will be giving your heart to them, expecting them to give you their heart and what you will end up getting is table scraps from them. You'll be giving them table scraps. You'll be living a big deception. And at the end of this whole entire roller coaster ride, you will feel as if you have been destroyed emotionally because you have been destroyed emotionally. Because you hoped for this other person to give you the sum total of themselves, and they didn't. And they were hoping the exact same thing from you. But when you give yourself to someone, you change. It doesn't mean you lose your identity or your sense of individuality. You don't lose that. In fact, what you end up is you gain the better, the best version. I was going to say the bestest version of that. I'll say the bestest version of that. You gain the best version of yourself as you give yourself away to this person that deeply loves you. You don't lose yourself in that sense. You gain it in a whole new, beautiful, robust, powerful, life-giving, life-pleasing, joy, life of type of a manner. And this is what marriage does. This is what relationships do. This is what being a disciple of Jesus is all about. You give yourself to Jesus, and he will ultimately not strip you of your identity, 
but he will give you an identity that is so good, so real, so true. It's truest, most authentic self. Again, we live in a culture today that's all about living into your most authentic self. And I would suggest to you that, yes, I'm, I'm a fan of that. I believe in that. But the way to get to the most authentic self and expression of who you are is not by taking everything into yourself and somehow being your own discerner of everything around you, but ultimately giving yourself mind, soul, and body to the one who made you, the one who loves you, the one who's deeply committed to you, the one who's there, the one who has manifested himself, and the one who ultimately will bring about our ultimate transformation. And how does he do that? Number one, he tells us in verse nine, so that we might live through him. God's aim is for you to live. Secondly, that we might have the that we might have our sins propitiated. Again, uh, it's a big word. Um, I think of the word expunged. Think of um, some sort of a failure in which we've had against us. Um, we've sinned against the God of this universe, the God who set things in motion, who set things in order. We do this all the time. We sin against other image bearers of God. We do this all the time. But we have a God that says, look, in spite of the fact of your brokenness, in spite of the fact of your sinfulness, I will expunge it. I will forgive you. I will wash it. But not just that. He used the word propitiate, which also means to be brought into a new state of acceptance, where favor is now shown upon you. And thirdly, we see that you, as human beings, as agents of God, also might love other people. Uh, what he does is, I think he's in a sense saying, because we've been shown love from God, now we can actually truly know what it means to love other people. Do you know that it is the Christian influence that swept over Europe, swept over Africa, swept over South America, swept over Asia, that literally changed culture as we know. We live in a culture today that wants to erase and eradicate every form of Judeo-Christian viewpoints and ideas and simply say it was nothing more than a form of oppression and imperialism. But at the end of the day, Christianity radically changed people's perspectives about other human beings. Every human being bears the image of God. You will not find that in any other religion. You will not find that in any other pagan myth. You will not find that in any other form of tyranny, ever. Do your homework, figure it out, and what you will find over and over and over again, the democratizing, the valuation, the liberation of other human beings comes because of this Judeo-Christian message. Ultimately, it has a God that says, because I love you, therefore go love others. In other words, think about the love of God that's been shown to you as a template or a schematic that you can now use to go love other people. Talk about being transformed. Because as human beings, I, I mean, like, I'll, I'll be really frank, and I'm almost done here. I'm not a loving person by nature. I'm very skeptical, very critical, very cynical of other human beings. You probably don't want to hear that, but it's true. I'm very distrusting of people. I don't trust a lot of people. And the fact of the matter is, that's not a good trait, by the way, is what I'm trying to get to. It's like, that does not make me look more like Jesus. It actually makes me look a whole heck of a lot more like Satan. You can ask my wife. It's, it's, it's not something I'm proud of, but it is there. It's on a table. I have to deal with it. But the point that I would make, the only way, the only reason why that I'm able to consistently, hopefully consistently, on a regular cadence or basis, go back to my wife and seek 
forgiveness and ask for apologies and try to set the record straight or try to become one that practices repentance is not because of biological evolution and not because of pagan mythology, but because of the story of God's love for me. It's the only thing. It's the only framework that makes me want to be for her the things that I know that she needs and the things that I want her to be for me is ultimately the love of God that has been expressed. And lastly, so that we might become this living, functioning model of God's presence. In verse 12, he says this, no one has ever seen God, no, but if we love one another, God abides in us. That phrase, God abides in us, I, I, I think John is no doubt thinking about temple. This is like temple language. Where does God live? We all know God's, God's live, you know, pagan gods live in temples. Where does Yahweh God live? Well, according to the ancient teachings, God lives in the temple. Though he inhabits eternity, he does also live in his presence. Sacred presence is in the temple. The hotspot of God's presence is in the temple. What John is suggesting here, that as we love one another, as we focus on the love of God that transforms us, we become like this, this temple. Imagine what it would look like as a community of people here on the Central Coast and beyond that truly practice this, like truly practice this love of God. Um, what type of a message would that send to this world that really practices various forms of pagan love or various forms of other atheistic versions of love that are detached from this type of love? What would it look like? I think, personally, it would be a radically life-transforming place. There's a reason why the early church grew so much as it did in the early years of the gospel going forth is because people recognized this is not a movement that's influenced by Greco-Roman myths. This is a movement that's totally different than those myths. You are welcomed and accepted and transformed by the love of God, no matter who you are, simply because you bear the image of God, period. This is the love that transforms and changes lives. It calls attention, calls our, calls our attention to acknowledge the fact where we are misaligned and then be brought back into this right relationship. So with that being said, I want to finish and I want to just close in a time of worship and song. So how about we all stand as Dan comes on up and he will lead us in one final song. But I'd like to pray over us as we transition our hearts into a moment of just reflection. If you would like, you're more than welcome to bring your kiddos back in here for this last song. If not, that's totally fine. We'll be done in a few moments where you can go pick up your kids as well. But I want to pray for us right now, and I want to invite you to just respond to this God that has given himself to us. So, Father, right now we ask you that you would just open our hearts to understanding in a deeper way of seeing and imagining what love could look like, that God, you don't wink at sin. You don't take it lightly. You take it seriously. There's a reason why Jesus came in this world to, to put an end to sin and rebellion and evil that is not only prevalent within this world, it's prevalent within us. But you did this by taking that evil unto yourself so that we can become people that have had our sins expunged, forgiven, washed, and have our position before you uh, welcomed and entered into the very heart of things. This is the love that transforms us. This is the love that we long for. This is the love that we need. This is the love that you offer. So God, we lift our voices of praise and worship and adoration to you for being this God.